All right. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 16 today. Uh, while you're doing that, let me go ahead and, and um, tell you something that, that I'm sure many of you will agree with, that Christians are the single most hated people group in the entire world. Some of you might think, ah, oh, that's inflammatory. Like, there's, there's definitely other people that are hated more. Um, but, but the reality is that Christians tend to be hated between two people, sometimes within what we would call the, war, the walls of orthodoxy, uh, people that claim to be Christian, and they don't like a particular uh, maybe, maybe camp, and so therefore they really hate other Christians instead of trying to work with them or, or, or recognize them as Christians. Other, uh, and what I would say probably the more dire persecution comes from outside the walls of orthodoxy. It would be people that really just want to stop Christians. They hate God and therefore they, they, they want to destroy those who love God. So two stories, both actually from recent days in Myanmar. Um, I don't know if you know, but Myanmar is currently having a coup d'etat, and uh, Buddhist extremists are using this as a an opportunity to target Christians and to end their ministries. But there, there, there's a young man here who, uh, who um, was reported on recently. He works with youth. He, he proclaims the gospel to youth in Myanmar. He spends time with youth. He prays with youth. It's what we would consider any youth pastor having to do. But he has to do it all secretly because it's illegal to be Christian in Myanmar. Um, he, uh, he, he, he recently went to go rescue his sister from a dangerous situation in this coup d'etat. There was a region that was being, uh, being assaulted and shot at, and so he went to go rescue his sister, and then he didn't return home. Um, actually, they found his body the next day thrown in a ravine with a single gunshot wound through his lung, and he asphyxiated. He died. His body would have actually been lost had it started raining in Myanmar because this ravine is a, is a runoff for water, and whether or not his shooter was trying to hide the body or not, we don't know. We just know that his body was found and that he was dead. A second story, there, there's a young couple that runs a house for kids. Now, in Myanmar, uh, if you're an orphan, you have a death sentence. There is no chance of you surviving. Um, the, the, the things that happen on the streets of Myanmar are terrible, uh, especially at night. So this couple has opened their house to orphans. They've let people in. And they recently had a newborn, uh, a newborn child, but for safety and security reasons, it wasn't disclosed whether it was male or female because they don't want to let it out on social media who this couple could be. Um, but the, they recently had this newborn baby, and uh, the husband had to run to the store as it was approaching dark hours, and he too was shot and killed. The wife does not yet know that he's been gunned down, but he was gunned down because he was a Christian. He was targeted. Uh, the Buddhist extremists in the area know who he is and uh, sought an opportunity, and this coup d'etat is a perfect opportunity for him to be killed, so he was gunned down. He did not have a single gunshot wound. He was riddled with bullets. Now, these sort of sufferings are actually something that Jesus promises. Uh, th this is the sort of inevitable suffering that, that, that comes at the hands of wicked, God-hating people. 
And those that die at the hands of these wicked, God-hating people, we actually refer to as martyrs. And I'm sure you've heard that word. It actually comes from the Greek word martus, which means witness. And the reason we call them witnesses, we call them martyrs, is because they died on account of their witness of their faith. The two events I mentioned are actually from March 17th and 19th, 2021. They're a few days ago. Uh, the missionary society that put it out has to anonymize the person who's putting out the information, who's asking for prayer, because again, the Buddhist extremists are targeting anybody associated with Christianity. And I know here in our culture, we think of Buddhists as some sort of hippie, peace-loving group that, uh, that, that just smiles at you. Um, maybe they wear robes, but the reality is the rest of the world, Buddhists will kill Christians. So <clears throat> these, the, Myanmar, by the way, is just west of Thailand. Uh, Thailand is apparently suffering a coup d'etat as well, um, but, but this is just Southeast Asia, right near right, uh, what used to be called Burma, um, but it's right near Bangladesh, right near India. So our passage today covers actually that promise that Jesus gives of persecution. Um, uh, when, when we read these, these verses, I want to emphasize that what Jesus is telling his apostles are not symbolic. They're not metaphorical. They're real. They're literal. They were fulfilled in their own lifetime, but Jesus points also to a future problem as well. But but I want I, I want you to feel the gravity of these words. Jesus is not just saying something that's meant to be an illustration that, yeah, no, I go through that. No, frankly, we don't, and we'll get to that. But I, I want you to feel as if when you hear these words, imagine Jesus was saying them directly to you. What would you do? So Matthew 10, 16 through 25. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they, deliver, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more? Will they malign those of his household? This is the word of the Lord. Think of that image at the beginning when Jesus says that he, he is sending them out as sheep among wolves. 
If there was ever a, uh, a pep talk, that's not it. That is probably one of the, 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 the most terrifying things that could be illustrated in the Bible. Think, just, just clo close your eyes if you have to, but imagine with me a, a, a set of sheep, maybe two sheep, walking through a pack of wolves. How long do you think those sheep are going to last before one wolf turns and nips at a sheep or just decides to pounce on it? I mean, a sheep would not be dumb enough to walk through a pack of wolves, would it? It would try and avoid it, smell the wolves. It would <coughs> maybe stay in a herd. It would cower away from the wolves. And what Jesus is saying to the apostles is, hey, I'm sending you into them. You are not going to be staying in safety. You're going to be walking into this dangerous situation, as dangerous as a, as, as a helpless prey animal, in the midst of a pack of carniv carnivorous predators. The sheep would not last long, which is why Jesus gives the, the admonition, the command, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, be shrewd, be crafty, be careful. Snakes move typically without making much noise. And be innocent as doves. Don't get your hands dirty. Stay clean. But, but even with those admonitions, how terrified would those sheep be? How much would they be shaking? How much sheep pattern hair loss would they have after getting through there? Sorry, that's a really dumb joke. But, but how long do you think they're going to last? How long before they, they go from being sheep to being consumed carcasses? That's supposed to terrify them. And even when Jesus starts out that behold, in the Greek it's idu, behold, listen to what I'm saying here. Listen to these words. I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. His, his apostles, when they hear that, uh, I don't know what they're thinking. There's no explanation, but if I were in that situation, I'd be thinking either Jesus is just being inflammatory, like Christians are the most hated people group on the planet, or maybe, maybe I'd be sitting there shaking in my boots going, oh, please don't let that be what I'm going into. But Jesus then continues, beware of men. Uh, they, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Does any of that sound awesome? Flogging it was, uh, was where they would take a whip that had little sh barbs of metal in it that would strike the person, and when it hit, it would pierce into the skin, and when they pulled back, it would rip the flesh off of them. The people are going to deliver them over, meaning, meaning they're going to feel like the Amazon package guy. Yes, I've conquered another one. They're going to be dragged before governors and kings, which means that not only are they going to be brought before people of Israel, they're going to be brought to the, to the other nations, which is what Gentiles means as he goes on, but, but he's going to be, these apostles are going to be brought before governors and kings for his sake. So does that sound great? No, of course not. It doesn't sound good. This is not a pep talk. This is not supposed to be something that the apostles walk away from and going, yes, yes, amen, amen. 
Just, just to think about it, what if I told you that attending this church means that you are signing your own death warrant? What if I said that you coming here and worshiping Jesus means you're going to die really quickly and horribly at the hands of people? That there's going to be mobs at your house? That you are not going to be able to defend yourself? If I told you that, and if I meant it, would you stay? Is it worth being here to worship, or would you maybe go hide or just abandon the faith altogether? Because what if I told you the rest of what's going to happen, right? So skip into verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. Listen, I can't, even, I, I, I can't imagine delivering my own children over to death, and yet this is what Jesus promises is going to happen. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and, and you'll be hated by all, which, by the way, means all sorts of people, not just every individual, but all sorts of people, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Again, does that sound good? Is that uplifting? If this is really what Jesus is promising, if, if that was really the promise I made, if I said worshiping here means this is going to be your fate, your own family is going to betray you either by killing you or calling the authorities on you, that you'll be hated by all kinds of people simply for loving Jesus and worshiping in this church. You're going to spend the rest of your days, folks, however short they may be, fleeing from one house, from one city, to another. Every second of your life is going to be spent in fear that you might be caught and killed. How, how would that make you feel? Because that's actually the reality that people face across the world right now, and even more so what Jesus meant specifically to the apostles. Think of the apostle Paul. He was delivered to the synagogues. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. He was then delivered over to kings or governors and kings and eventually faced Caesar himself, only to be tried and convicted and killed horrifically. What if I said that was your fate? Is, would Christianity be convenient enough for you to continue coming to a church and worshiping? And I want to make clear, the reason I'm really hammering into the details of the terror of this is because I want to make, make clear that we do not face that level of persecution here in America. We don't. We, it, it may come to that someday, but, but frankly, that day is not today. I don't have to be afraid of being shot or beaten with a club for telling the gospel to some lady at the dog park. I don't have to be worried that the police are going to show up to my door and arrest me for having gone to church on Sunday. We cannot and should not pretend that we are in such a dangerous situation as Jesus describes here. We shouldn't live in fear of proclaiming the gospel because, frankly, if I were to proclaim the gospel, you know, the worst that's going to happen to me in a, <clears throat> in a secular marketplace, is I might lose some friends or maybe I'll lose a job. And that actually did happen to me. I got put on night shift. I got put on graveyard shift because I was witnessing to my coworkers. My coworkers then complained to my boss, and my boss said, yeah, I'm going to transfer you teams. You're going to be on graveyard shift because you keep talking about this Jesus guy. That happened to me. 
That happened to me. But I'm not going to conflate and be deluded to the point that I say I was heavily persecuted. I still had a job. I wasn't being arrested by the authorities. I suffered for it, but I suffered, frankly, for only a couple weeks before my stats went up and the, and the higher-ups were like, oh, uh, yeah, actually, you know what? You should probably just move back to day shift. I didn't press charges. I didn't complain. I just got told that the things you were talking about were making your coworkers feel uncomfortable. Very clever wording, by the way. But the sort of persecution we face in our society today is more like being told to shut up. But, but honestly, if I'm going to read these verses, if I'm going to see the things that Jesus promises, I can't call it heavy persecution that we suffer here. I just can't. And if I did, I'm deluded. Because just being told to shut up or being put in Facebook jail, which is a thing, being, being banned on Facebook for X number of days, that is not somebody holding a gun to my chest saying, recant, or I'm going to blow, you, blow, blow your chest out. Resist the delusion to, to, to look at, at, this, at the persecution we face in America and say it's heavy persecution, friends, because we have brothers and sisters in the Lord, like the young man who just had a baby being blown to bits for taking in orphans in the name of Jesus. And you know what? Those people are still preaching the gospel. What are we doing? Are we preaching the gospel? Because if this persecution is promised, this heavy level of persecution is promised to people who follow Christ, I wonder if we're doing our job right. But moving on to the actual promises in these verses, I skipped some, and I meant to. I've covered the realities of persecution in our day and age, but Jesus puts these three promises and one of them is kind of hard to understand. But these three promises in, in this promise of persecution, it's that words will be given to them, that they won't go through all the towns, and it's enough to be like the master. So those are where I'd like to spend the rest of our time together today. So the first promise falls in verses 19 to 20 which, just to remind you of the context, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. It's important to note that within the, the context here, Jesus is not saying, hey, don't worry, you know, God's going to give you the words, uh, he'll smooth it over, you're going to get out of trouble, and you're not going to have to deal with it anymore. That's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying uh, is, is, is when you follow the, the flow of logic from verse 18, we read that they're going to be delivered over to bear witness. Now, the problem with basically every translation is that bearing witness sounds like a verb. It sounds like an action. Uh, in the Greek, uh, Jesus is actually using... The, the, the word witness, he's using it as a noun, uh, but it doesn't fit with English. Like if you try and say, uh, say what Jesus is saying, it's going to sound funky. But Jesus is essentially saying this. 
Um, he's saying, um, you're going to be dragged before people. You're, you're going to uh, you're, you're gonna suffer greatly. It's for my sake, by the way, and you're going you're gonna to bear witness, meaning you're going to become a martyr. You could potentially be killed. But don't worry, you don't have to try and rehearse some sort of a testimony. Instead, the Spirit is going to give you the words in that moment. And if you think about being in the moment, say, say you're sitting in front of a military general who, and you're surrounded by people who have guns pointed at you, and, the, and, and they say, are you a Christian? What are you going to want to say? Because that's going to determine how serious you are about the faith. But let me give you a promise. If you are truly a Christian, even if you're going to want to, with your knees shaking, say, uh, no, no I, I don't, I, I'm not, the Holy Spirit will empower you to be truthful at that point. That's the promise that Jesus is making. Don't worry. Don't worry. If you, if you are mine and you get dragged before these people, you will not recant. So therefore, we can glean the true meaning of this promise. It's not a promise of safety and security, being able to eke your way out. It's actually a trust that, that, uh, that what you would say in that moment is brought to you by the Holy Spirit. Chances are, considering what Jesus is talking about, to be truthful is going to get your head chopped off, get fed to lions, uh, get, get uh, crucified. But when you declare that truth, it will be empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. God not letting you lie about your salvation. So therefore, if you or I are ever in a situation where we may have to give an account of our faith, this is a promise that holds true. This is not, by the way, about not preparing for sermons, which is one of the most ridiculous understandings of this verse. But the promise is, is true. If you are standing before a friend and the friend says, you know, Christians are dumb. I can't believe anybody's a Christian. You're not a Christian, are you? Then, frankly, the Spirit is going to empower you to be truthful in that moment. It's not going to be your own power. Or if you are standing uh, like, like potentially one of the guys I mentioned at the beginning, standing before a firing squad, of Buddhist monks saying, if you, if you don't tell me you're not a Christian, I will pump you so full of lead that you're going to, you're, you're going to raise the water level. Then, then you're going to be empowered by the Spirit to speak the truth. The second promise is actually a really difficult one. It's at the end of verse 23. Um, the just to remind you the context, verse 23 says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before, oops, skipped my thing. Uh, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, there's three primary ways to interpret this. Um, two of them are wrong and I'm right. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, so uh, there's three ways. I'm not going to dig into them too deep, but the promise here is either like, hey, you're gonna, you're, you won't have gone through all the towns before I catch up to you, 
So the geographic catch up, the geographic come. Uh, there's also the you're not going to go through all the towns before I'm resurrected view. Um, but the, the problem is that the, the word that Jesus chooses here doesn't just mean come, it also means return. So exegetically, meaning if I'm going to look at what the actual Greek says and determine what Jesus is saying, he's actually not talking about his geographic catch-up. He's not talking about his resurrection. He's talking about his second coming. And that, that poses a problem. All of Israel has been evangelized, right? Like missionaries have gone through every single uh, city in, in Israel. So therefore, Jesus was wrong. No. Because what Jesus is actually uh, trying to illustrate is the unending mission that Christians have to the Jews. The, all the towns, all the people of Israel are not going to be evangelized before Jesus returns. And in fact, we've missed tons. How many people die every day? How many people do you think die in Israel every single day? Now, I know Israel in general is a bit of a vacation spot nowadays, um, but in order to apply this, uh, th this, this verse in terms of, of God's heart for his covenant people, the, the, the people, the nation that he covenanted himself with, that instead of thinking of Israel as a vacation spot for us to go witness the Holy Land, really what we should have is a heart for the people of Israel, that we should be going to proclaim the gospel to them not have the gospel of vacations proclaimed to us. And I looked it up this morning. Uh, apparently, if you're going to travel to Israel and go on a tour of Israel, if you're, on, if you're on the cheap, it's about $300 a day to travel through Israel. If you're looking for a more luxury package, it's upward around $850 a day, and that is not including airfare. So if I'm going to go ahead and drop you know, 10 grand on a trip to Israel my role better be the gospel, not, not, uh, not anything else. So when Jesus says this promise, you know, that you're not going to evangelize all the people of Israel before the Son of Man returns, think about that. Our work may be unceasing in evangelizing the Jewish nation, but we don't have to feel like we have to rush it to completion because Jesus is going to come back. We should rush to try and re reach as many souls as possible. Uh, a Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McShane, which if you look at his name spelled, it looks like M-M-Chain, but it's McShane. Uh, he was burdened for the lostness of the nation of Israel and in the 1800s traveled to Israel and started trying to do a preaching circuit where he's preaching the gospel through as many towns as he possibly could. But before he could complete his mission, he grew gravely ill and had to travel back to Scotland. And he felt really guilty about it because he had people from his church that were paying for him to go out there. He had uh, uh, benefactors from outside of his church that were paying for him to go preach the gospel. And instead, he spent basically all that money on medication and travel to get back to Scotland. And he felt incredibly guilty. But he remembered Matthew 10.23, and he actually felt a great sense of relief realizing that he hadn't made it through all the towns of Israel before Jesus came back either. 
And the reality is that, again, neither he nor anyone else will make it through every single person of Israel before Jesus returns. That should be a, a, a comfort. The fact that God will return when he intends. He's not waiting on our completion of the mission before he comes back. It doesn't rely on you. It doesn't rely on me. Instead, it relies on him and his timing. Jesus isn't going to come back and uh, those of us say, no, 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 wait. I haven't actually made it to Portland yet. I've only, I've only evangelized two neighborhoods of the, the, the 910, I made that number up, of, of Portland. God does not wait on us. He comes in his own timing. Now, that la the last promise comes in verses 24 to 25. And actually, this, this was a promise that I only got because I was messing around with an interlinear Bible on my computer, and I realized something that I, I thought was in incredible. So um, the, the, third, the third promise is that it's enough to be like our master, enough to be like Christ. Um, I, I made clear, by the way, if you've forgotten, uh, that, that our sufferings, are, are pitiable in comparison to the sufferings of people outside of our country, outside of especially Western context. The, the, the persecution that they endure is significantly more literal to this passage than what we go through. But does that invalidate our persecution? Let's look at verses 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It's enough, friends, to be like our teacher. Now, the word Christ-like has been thrown around. I've heard it my Christian walk, which is whatever. I can't, I can't do math. Somewhere over 10 years. So uh, I, I've, I've, I've been a Christian for more than a decade, and I've always heard you need to be Christ-like. You need to be Christ-like. So what does that mean? How Christ-like am I supposed to be? How much am I supposed to reflect Jesus as, a, as, as, as God in perfection? Well, when we use the word like in this connotation and others in, in comparison to being like Christ, the link is what we call grammatically a weak adverbial comparative, meaning that we could say that somebody is supposed to be an exact imprint. That would be a strong adverbial comparative. Uh, but that's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say that we're supposed to mirror him exactly. He says we're supposed to be like our master. So therefore, are our persecutions invalidated because we don't have guns pointed at us all the time? No. They're not invalidated. Because, because Jesus was maligned. He was insulted. And so we, when we are insulted for being Christians, that is a form of persecution. It's just not heavy persecution. It's heavier now than it was generations past, but, 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 but it, it's not as heavy as like somebody in Myanmar. So how do we reconcile that? How do we think of this in terms of a, um, 
in terms of, of some form of comfort? Well, just because our persecution is weak and not strong is much like how we're supposed to be like Christ in a weak and not perfect way. So listen, all Christians are promised persecution. You, if you claim to know Jesus, I promise you you're going to be persecuted. Not like the people in Myanmar, not like the people in northern Africa who have to hide their identities, not like, uh, not like the, 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 the people in Thailand, not like the people in China. But Jesus actually says in Matthew 5, 10 to 11, that we are called blessed for suffering on account of Christ. Remember that? That was like 18 months ago when we, when we went through Matthew 5. I'm just kidding. Um, but we're called blessed for going through suffering on the sake of right, or for the sake of righteousness. And let me remind you that when you are persecuted in today's day and age, you are actually commanded to bless those who persecute you, Romans 12, 14. Do not curse, but bless those who persecute you. So persecution will come. Your persecutions, my persecution, having to be thrown on graveyard shift, that's not nothing. It's not like in, the, in, in Jesus' book, he, he, you know, I'm going to say, well, I did get persecuted, kind of, and Jesus goes, no, you didn't. No, nah, you're, you're just a whiny little baby. Stop it. Jesus is not going to do that. Instead, he's going to look at my persecution, and I'm probably not going to get the, the, the role of martyr that's crying out to the Lord currently, how long, how long, O oh Lord? But, but, my persecution is not ignored by Christ. What a wonderful thing. I just have to be like him. Not a perfect carbon copy I don't need to put on sackcloth and ashes and uh, wear a robe and walk around the deserts of, of Judea. I don't have to do that. I, I don't. I just have to be like him. So those, those three promises, again, when you, are, when you are dragged before governors and you, 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 you are dragged before people and made to give an account of your faith, don't worry. The Lord is going to provide you the words to, to testify to him of his worthiness. And frankly, it's in, it's in those moments that sometimes you realize, wow, I actually do love Christ more than I thought I did. Like when I had my boss tell me, hey, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And I'm like, listen, I'm sitting here reading my Bible. That's all I'm doing. I'm reading my Bible. I'm not talking to anybody about anything. Other people are asking me. And he's like, well, you need to stop bringing your Bible to work. I was, no, I am not going to do that. I will continue. In fact, at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be more stubborn. I'm going to always have my Bible open. It's never going to be closed on my desk. I realized how much more I loved God and his word when I, when I was threatened and had to suffer the consequences of my faith, as, again, pitiable as they were. And I imagine that, that the individuals that are facing literal physical persecution are in a, a similar manner, where maybe they're standing there and somebody says, well, you're going to renounce Christianity or else. And all of a sudden, the words that come out of their mouth are, I guess it's or else then. 
So words will be given in the time of trial. Also, our God's return is not dependent on us completing our work. He intends to return when he's going to return. And then the third one, it is enough to be like your Savior. You don't have to be Jesus. You just have to be like him. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. So let me close with words uh, from someone who suffered greatly on account of Christ. And that's going to be the Apostle Peter. And this is one of my favorite sections of the whole Bible. It's 1 Peter 4, 12 to 17. Uh, but, but, but Jesus, or Jesus, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as, if, as though something strange were happening to you which describes every bit of persecution I've, well, not every bit, that's totally, totally exaggerative. But that, that, that describes plenty of other people. Like when I was getting shoved in the graveyard shift, I had a friend who told me very, very straight up, like you need to sue them. They shouldn't be doing that to you. But I wasn't surprised because I was promised by Jesus that I would suffer persecution. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Persecution is meant to help us appreciate Jesus more. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If any of you suffers as a Christian, not as a lazy employee, not as, not, not as a murderer or a thief, somebody stealing time from their employer, let you not, uh, do not suffer for that, but suffer as a Christian. And don't be ashamed, but, but glorify God in that name by which you suffer. Oh, how countercultural that is, friends. Let's pray and we'll sing our last song and then we'll, we'll uh, do communion together. God, we don't go through as much as our brothers and sisters who are in jail in China, who disappear and never return in, in China and Myanmar and Thailand and, and, and uh, Bangladesh and India and, and, um, and Africa throughout the regions. Uh, we, we don't suffer the same. And so, God, I pray for the strength not to be deluded and conflate our struggles with, with their struggles but let us also not think that you don't look on favor with us when we go through trials. Because, God, they come on us to test us, to prove to ourselves how much we love you. Let us rejoice insofar as we share in your sufferings, Lord. Let us rejoice because you are so worthy to suffer for. An eternity of glory 
being delighted in your presence, we can suffer for just a blip of time on this earth for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace, saints. And remember Jesus' death and sacrifice and the promise of persecution.